it felt a little bit like we had gone to the restaurant and decided we were going to order the side salad. And what was brought to the table was the giant 64 ounce steak and all the trimmings. And it was like, well, what are we going to do? We're going to eat it, of course. Welcome to Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. Each episode of this podcast digs deep into one person's story of change to reveal a little bit about how and why we make big changes in our lives and what can be learned from these experiences. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm, a consultancy that helps companies learn from their customers and consumers through deep conversation and connection, often told as stories like the one you'll hear on this podcast. So let's get the conversation started. Today's conversation on Digging Deep features Alice Blackwell, co-owner of New Orleans' legendary Hi-Ho Lounge, and her big change from office work to running a music venue in what she calls the city of her heart. Why don't I start by just having you tell your story briefly, and then we'll go into some details. I guess I feel like the main story, you know, the big change um, in my life the last five or so years has been this moved to New Orleans, the city of my heart, and uh, becoming owner of a fairly well-known and locally beloved bar and music venue. You mentioned that New Orleans was the city of your heart. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, Yes, definitely. I can't pinpoint exactly one thing um, that set it off, but there were several little things that quickly became very resonant about New Orleans to me somewhat later in life. So I, (laughs) and now that I'm, now that I'm older and now that I know, you know, now that I've spent so much more time here and and know more about the city, I'm realizing that there were things even earlier in my life that I loved about New Orleans, only I didn't know that they were about New Orleans. That the first sort of thing I can really put my finger on is, it sounds so, it sounds kind of silly, but I think I was reading the Witching Hour series by Anne Rice. It's set in New Orleans, and the way she described the city, so, just so lush and evocative, and it, it series goes back and forth in time and during different eras, and it, there's something about it was so intriguing to me. It just, it just really captured me, and this was, this was back when I was in my mid-20s. And did, um, you, did you visit the city? Well, I, wa- I wanted to. Just imagining it. I, I imagined it back then I was, I mean, I guess poor is one way to put it. I just, you know, I had, I had small children, you know, I was still in, you know, I was still attending college. I did not have a lot of, well, any disposable income really, but it was, it was a dream of mine to, to come to New Orleans. And in fact, I, I started visiting it in, in the ways that I could. I started getting more interested in the music and reading pretty much everything I could find out about it and planning a visit down the road by squirreling away, you know, a little extra dollar here, extra dollar there, which finally years later was was able to pay for my first trip. So you arrive in New Orleans finally. I'd like to know a little more about what age you were and then what that first impression was like when you took your first deep breath there, did it fulfill what you were expecting? I always have to look back and think about how old my kids were to remember how old I was. So I guess I was um, 28 or 29. It was this, you know, long awaited trip. I ended up 
coming with a girlfriend who, you know, it was going to be a girl's trip, which my husband at the time was very opposed to it. It made it very difficult for me. And there's a lot of guilt around that, but the, the pull of New Orleans was far too strong. I, there was no way I was not going. I don't even remember why, but we had booked a trip for November and we landed and it was pouring down rain almost the whole trip, not knowing the city like I do now. There was only one bed and breakfast truly in the garden district, which was one of these sort of settings uh, for this novel that I really wanted to explore. We landed, we unpacked, and we went out into the rain and walked up to the nearest landmark street, St. Charles Avenue. So again, this is November. It's not freezing cold, but cold and pouring down rain. And we walk up to St. Charles Avenue and I look up and I see something out of the corner of my eye. And there in the trees all along St. Charles Avenue are all these broken and sort of fading strands of beads as if they're growing there out of the trees. There are, be- there are beads in the trees. And I look, at first I thought, well, someone must have thrown beads in this one tree. And I look next to it and there's beads in that tree. And there's, there, are, there are beads hanging like, you know, some sort of, <laughs> some sort of, you know, premature Christmas decorations or something in all of these trees. And then it hits me. Oh, these are, they're, they've been there since Mardi Gras. These beads, they're part of the landscape of this street. And in that moment, I was just, I was so utterly charmed by that. I was so struck by that, that it, it was just like, it was almost like a thunderbolt. I'm wondering in that moment, what was the emotion that you were feeling? It's hard to describe because I've, I had never felt it before, but it was like, this is the place. This is the place. This. Is that the moment when you crafted your plan to relocate there and, and do something? Oh, no, no, no. That was the moment that full on head over heels love, okay. <laughs> I suppose you could say. But in my mind, that was just, it was a trip. I loved the place. I knew it was somewhere that I would want to return to. But I guess I had told myself that, that I had sort of scratched that itch. Now I knew what New Orleans was all about. <laughs> so how much time went by between that moment and your final decision to to relocate? Oh, I mean is it decades? Well, yeah, more than yeah, more than 10 years. In okay. fact, it was years before my second trip. What um, do you think kept you from going back sooner? Well, work, life, kids, you know, mm-hmm. just this idea, I mean, just the boldness or the, you know, the the very idea of completely uprooting my life and moving there was just unthinkable. Like just never occurred to me. Oftentimes when I speak with people about big change, there is an inflection point. Either they have an experience or they, something hits them in there and they suddenly uh, decide to either immediately go and do something or spend a little bit more time studying it, but they kind of develop a goal. Do you feel like you came to that or what was your inflection point, so to speak? Um, that was the second trip. <laughs> it took two trips. So that first trip was, I want to say, around 1999, 2000. It was before Katrina. And then my next trip was a little while after Katrina. During the intervening five or so years, you know, I, my, my career advanced. You know, the kids had grown a little older. Um, and I had a work trip come up doing research at a conference that was based in New Orleans. So I and a group of coworkers headed to New Orleans and I was so 
excited. Finally, I was getting this, you know, this second chance. So I told everyone, okay, hey, aside from all the work stuff, I'm going to plan this itinerary. There are so many places that I wanted to go the first time that I didn't didn't get to go. We're going to have so much fun after the conference, you know, in and around doing this work. Um, so I got very excited and, you know, I'm the kind of person who puts together spreadsheets for <laughs> trips, whether they're work or vacation or whatever. So I had my little spreadsheet and had all these lovely things planned and, you know, a little tour of this and dinner here and music there. And, and we did a bunch of wonderful things, but most of my coworkers left the day before I did. I stayed an extra day. And on that extra day, I took a, I'd arranged um, to go on a walking tour, um, like a, a historical you know, history of the French Quarter walking tour. And just walking from where our hotel was through the quarter to where this tour is going to be. This sounds so strange because I'm, I'm not like a woo-woo person at all. I don't have, I don't have the tiniest, you know, micron of, you know, sort of magical belief or anything like that. But this, this feeling settled over me. And I, I told myself, it wasn't so much that I told myself, but I knew in that moment, I said, I will not let it, this much time go by uh, between trips to New Orleans again. In fact, it, and I knew that was the case. And the promise that I made to myself was I will come at least once a year. This, I just looking around, just the air, the, what were the, what were some of the, the feelings that you were having at that time? It was, it echoed that first, um, that first sort of, um, you know, eureka moment was, it was, it was that this is the place, this place right here. I, I, something about this place speaks to me, calls to me. So the city's calling to you. How did you get to that moment when you decided to commit to actually going there? I mean, so did you decide to purchase the bar and that's why you moved there? Did you decide to move there and then look for an opportunity? No. So what I did (laughs) Somebody, it might have been my, it might have been my husband actually. Someone described it. I think it was him. He said it was like the, the most slow motion, long distance move you could ever imagine. So right about that time, around that second trip was when, so my my first marriage was over, and my relationship with my first husband was was in the works. He he, when I brought him to New Orleans, um, and kind of showed it to him through my eyes, he he kind of clicked with him as well. And between some additional work trips that, you know, I was lucky enough to be able to come to New Orleans for work between that and pretty much any additional vacation time that I could squeeze a trip into that promise of coming back at least once a year. I don't think, I don't think it ever was just once a year from that point on. It's silly now to think that like, oh, in that moment when I saw those beads in the trees, I really got New Orleans. I didn't. I thought I did, but I didn't. Probably still think I do and and still don't. The city never ceases to kind of unpeel new, you know, wonderful and sometimes awful layers. Honestly, it's really a city of strong contradictions and juxtapositions. But so I, I had been coming more than once a year for a couple, three years, really felt like I, you know. You know, I'm this like visitor who's you know really thought I was in the know, but I had never come from Mardi Gras. 
which is a little bit strange, especially when you consider that whole moment with the beads and the trees, right? I knew those were from Mardi Gras. For a long time, I had kind of resisted coming from Mardi Gras because for some reason in my head, I thought, I want to, I want to see the real New Orleans. And there was this, I think it's, I think it was kind of a, a residue, if you will, of this, this sort of the national understanding of Mardi Gras outside of New Orleans tends to be very, you know, Bourbon Street, Girls Gone Wild, you know, drunken debauchery. Yeah, it sounds like you had a slightly different relationship with the city. And the way you're talking about it, it, it is almost like a relationship. Oh, very much so. <laughs> but so I finally, my oldest daughter's birthday is in March and her 21st birthday was just within a couple of days of, of Mardi Gras. So I decided, okay, I'll take her down for Mardi Gras. And it was, it was my first time, her first time. And uh, it was, there's nothing more real New Orleans than Mardi Gras. I mean, I, I felt like such a buffoon for having let that elude me for, <laughs> for those few years. What about it makes it seem more real when Mardi Gras is happening? Well, it's almost like, okay, see, I'm going to get all woo-woo again about it. Let me, let me see if I can, let me see if I can look up. I think you need to let your woo-woo fly a little bit. Uh, I am very resistant to that. I'm, I'm almost. I know you are, but maybe you need to confront that a little bit. Oh, well, other people who are, who are very, you know, deliberately not woo-woo when we run into each other in New Orleans, we'll have that conversation time. Sometimes we'll be like, Oh, well, you know, I'd like to say that wasn't magic, but New Orleans, we, you know, like, yeah, I know. Incredibly, there's nothing word for magical things happen here all the time. This last Mardi Gras, we were very busy at work. And so I didn't take, and I'm living here now, right? So I actually, I actually spend less time enjoying Mardi Gras now that I live here than I did when I would come here for, you know, a, a real vacation. But I had to write, I needed to write um, kind of an out-of-office coverage email for folks so that they would understand that, you know, I'm taking this time off for Mardi Gras. And so what I wanted people to understand was, if you need to get a hold of me, um, you know, I'll be back on blah, blah, date. Please send me a text if you need to let me know what's up. And then I said, important caveat, even texts will not reach me on the 16th, which was Mardi Gras day. On Mardi Gras day, all of New Orleans shifts into an alternate dimension where real life utterly vanishes from the collective consciousness. For that one glorious day, the only place that exists is the city that care forgot. And the only time that exists is carnival time. Obviously, there's no self-coverage. The entire universe is New Orleans on Mardi Gras. There's no reason to ever have anything else. Tell me a little bit about how you decided to become the caretaker for what is a really legendary (laughs) place, right? How did that happen? So... After, you know, the, the first Mardi Gras and realizing that, okay, now I can never, ever miss Mardi Gras again. Like that's, that can never happen. Then the visits just kept being, you know, three, four, sometimes more times a year, depending on work and other stuff. Um, my husband and I just started playing around with the idea of, well, you know, what if we had a little like vacation home here? We're here often enough. Like we are spending a ton of money on hotel rooms. This is, these were all just like, you know, obviously subconsciously trying to justify buying a little pied-à-terre here. But we we very quickly managed to justify it to ourselves and just kind of started looking something where we could, you know, we could leave some clothes here and pop in and out a little more easily and just wanting to be a little bit more part of the city and part of the community and, and, and part of that magic. So we did find a little place, which was a tiny little 
carriage house, like 300 square feet, just like half a block outside the French Quarter. And that did make it easier to pop in and out and come here quite a lot. It was my husband who, as he was approaching decision point about when would he retire from the research job and when that was going to happen and what was what he was going to do afterwards, he he kind of started voicing this idea of, oh, you know, it'd be really cool to just to just own a little corner bar here. And he would talk about, oh, you know, just just a little just a little diet bar where the locals come, just you know, show up around noon, you know, turn on the TVs, polish some glasses, you know, the locals start wandering in, just you know, something fun to do with his time. And and I was like, well, well that's that sounds great. So New Orleans being New Orleans, there's not a, a set of Craigslist postings about bars for sale or you know, there's not really, there's not really. That's not how it's done. No, it's, you have to know someone who knows someone who has a bar who's thinking about selling, but hasn't told it. And it's all this networking. So we, we, we started looking through what channels we could find and there was really nothing to be found. And then we started just kind of putting the word out through folks like our just friends that we knew like, oh, hey, you know, if you hear of any little, you know, any little places for sale, just let us know. Just thinking that's one of the magical things about New Orleans is the just extremely small odds coincidence type things that will happen. They happen all the time. <laughs> so you kind of start to, you know, if you're here long enough, it starts to not seem that odd, but, you know, you'll be sitting somewhere, some bar way off the beaten track, you know, and you'll turn around. And there's your best friend from sixth grade sitting right next to you. You haven't seen, I mean, New Orleans does draw people in from all over the place, but, you know. Right. But these types of things kind of build that, I don't know, magic, woo-woo kind of feeling. Because at some point, you shouldn't be having that many coincidences. (laughs) Right. It's a a very, very small town for the size that it actually is. Somebody said something like, uh, when you meet you meet someone in New Orleans for the first time, you're going to meet them again six times that week. Oh, that's funny. And it's, and it happens all the time. And it happens all the time. So had you already relocated at this point or this was on one of your trips? So you just start putting yeah. some, the word out through this, this informal network. Yes. On, on, on okay. several trips. I mean, we, we were bouncing okay. this idea around for, Oh, for sure. More than a year. And in fact, we even had a couple of, you know, a couple of folks, let us know about a couple of different bars that either were about to be for sale or, or, you know, they were looking for potential buyers. And we looked into a couple, three of those, none of which really were the right thing. In fact, we, we made an offer on one that uh, was not accepted. Another offer was accepted. And that bar was very, it was, um, I would say it was fairly close to that original idea of kind of corner bar, fairly, you know, local clientele. So kind of low key set, kind of fitting, low key. fitting yeah. your <clears throat> kind of your preconceived notion. Well, and, and yes. And, and it was probably fairly fitting of our level of experience in any sort of hospitality type industry, which was zero. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. So at this point you've made an offer, you've not been successful. Talk to me about a little bit about where you were coming from. Where were you living at that time? Oh, well, we were living in Portland, both still full-time at the research company, and then just, yeah, frequent trips to New Orleans. So very frequent. different, very different, right? 
the contrast of one to the other. Did you finally make the move to put yourself there full time so you could really dig into the network? Or did you move after this particular opportunity was presented? Well, after the opportunity, it kind of came, I wouldn't say out of nowhere, I can trace the connections back to how I came aware of the opportunity. One of the folks that we had told, hey, you know, we're we're looking to buy some kind of little bar. If you hear of anything, let us know. Uh, one of those folks was, is this woman named Nancy, who's, she's local to Louisiana and she's, she was a carriage driver. She was a tour guide for one of the carriage tour companies. And she knows tons of people. She loves making connections. She had been talking to one of the owners of three bars, two on Frenchman and then the Hi-Ho. This gentleman who she was talking to was he was trying to help another lady who owned a bar just off of Frenchman Street, who she was looking to sell for whatever reasons. And he was being a nice guy, was kind of trying to help her. So she, um, this tour guide friend of ours, connected us and we started talking to him about the possibility of just what was the deal with this particular bar that this other lady was selling. And the more we found out about it, the more, you know, we were really, really interested, especially because this bar was located about two blocks from our carriage house. And it had a lot of really great things going for it. But it also was kind of a lot to bite off just in terms of size and the size of the monthly rent. I mean, this is a very hopping part of town. So real estate and everything was very expensive there. But for one reason or another, we just weren't sure. And it kind of felt like that deal was kind of going on the back burner. But then one day out of the blue, this same guy emailed me and I think Michael as well. And we were we were both at work. We were in different, I think he was in Portland and I was on the road doing some focus groups or something and going through my email between groups. And here's this email saying, oh, hey, by the way, just wondering if there's any chance you all would be interested in buying a hi-ho. I just looked at that email and I was like, kind of shaking my head like, what? Where is this, you know, where is this coming from? And so Michael and I quickly, you know, he had seen it too. And we, we were like, that's crazy. The hi-ho? They're selling the hi-ho? the legendary Hi-Ho Lounge. And it wasn't something they had put out there yet. He just knew that, that we were looking and they had kind of been thinking about pulling back and maybe focusing on the on the other two bars that they had on Frenchman. And we, it was like, we just couldn't believe it. It felt so, it felt like just too good to be true, but also very scary. Scary in what way? Well, that we don't know anything about, not only do we not know anything about, you know, working in the hospitality industry, owning a bar, running a bar, being a bartender. But then it had this whole, the Hi-Ho Lounge was also, it's a music venue. So a lot of, there are obviously thousands of bars in New Orleans and most of them will have some kind of, you know, musical or, or other entertainment at one time or another. But there are relatively few that have the actual license to operate as a music venue. But having this particular license, it's something that they're very hard to get. The opportunity for that other bar that was just a couple blocks from our carriage house was still potentially a better fit for us in some ways. So you're pursuing both at the same time. What do you think yeah. made the difference for you between those two? I have felt right, but I'm not sure if that's, you know, if I'm just looking back at that retroactively and saying that, I, I, I think that's true. But also the high hope was they had real sort of books that we could look at. It had a really established reputation. Like I said, it's beloved icon of a, of a bar and so music venue. Would you say it had a, a public history that you could dig oh, into? Oh, yeah. It had, yeah, had 
everybody has a hi-ho story. One of our favorite things to do is if we're taking a cab or a lift or something somewhere or from somewhere and, and going to the hi-ho is to just sort of collect the stories. We'll get in and they'll say, oh, you're going to the hi-ho. Everybody has a story about the hi-ho lounge. Oh, you know, the, the lift driver would be like, oh, I love the hi-ho. We hear that so often. Oh, the hi-ho. I love the hi-ho. Everybody can talk about, you know, and it's they're not all talking about the same era of the place either. What does the, does the name mean anything? Is there a story behind that? As far as I could tell, and I am trying to put together a lot of this history, this was the folks that first opened it as a bar, which we just found out was in 1961. So 60 years ago, they chose that. I'm not sure why. I think okay. it, I mean, it sounds like a Count Basie song. I mean, it sounds like a, it sounds like it's from a musical reference of some sort. Well, it fits in with a lot of bars of that era, not just in New Orleans, but the ones in New Orleans I can think of are like the Shim Sham Club, you know, mm. Oop uh, Doo, uh, <laughs> you know. I think they're all from songs. <laughs> <laughs> so that's funny. So did you sudden, now let me flash forward. You've gone through this analysis, you've cut the deal, you've closed the deal. Now, are you on a crash course to learn about hospitality? Well, uh, my husband was. So what happened was we signed the deal that got finalized uh, just after New Year's on 2018. And we knew that was going to happen. So this, it was, it was months in the works. And so we kind of arranged. So it, it coincided with his retirement from the research job. So, you know, we came down together for New Year's to get all the paperwork in order. And I think, you know, two nights later, he was behind the bar, you know, 10 deep at the bar, just learning by being thrown in the deep end. So from that point on, he was living here full time at that point in the carriage house. And I was basically kind of working from home at the research job a month at a time. I would do month on month off New Orleans and okay. Portland. Okay. Did you use any of your research or analytical skills in either making the decision and or running the business going forward? Yes. Oh, yes. Which we've got uh, obviously bar or any business generates vast quantities of, you know, financial and other data that I actually, I could spend a lot more time looking into and working with if I had more time. Okay. Um, and then Michael, my husband is just, he's not, a, well, not exactly a jack of all trades, more of a Renaissance man than a jack of all trades. He can fix anything, the plumbing, the electric, whatever. He's really good with people. He can, he can motivate them. He can, he can pull the best out of people. You know, he works with the the vendors and, or like he can it just after three months, he can take one glance at the liquor room and basically know not only what we need to order, but how the trends of what people are drinking are changing. Mm. I mean, he's, he's tremendous like that. So how was that first Mardi Gras? You didn't own the place very long. I don't re remember much of that first Mardi Gras other than the inside of the bar. Cause we didn't, that's what we did. That was a huge, I mean, you make your money, you know. Right. So I was wondering what it would be like to be the new owners of such a legendary place. That first Mardi Gras must have been um, crazy. Uh, it was crazy, but it, oh, it was also completely magical. Again, with the magic, there was what I think of as the, the first of many such just purely magical moments, often, you know, to do with the music on the stage and kind of the the vibe at the hi-ho. I mean, it's all because of the music. The, the booze helps, obviously, but the level of talent, the level of entertainment that I've seen on that stage is just mind-blowing. But the first one that I really remember was, I think it must have been Mardi Gras evening because we took ownership 
right around the first of the year. And then Mardi Gras was just a couple of months later. So most of the acts that we had booked around Mardi, you know, carnival season were ones that we, that were already on the books when we took over. And there had been a tradition of, for several years of the Mardi Gras Indian Orchestra, which is a particular band featuring one or more actual black masking Indians as band leader. Anyway, they're on the stage and they're, they're performing. It's, it's late. Like we've been exhausted. We have been there working, I think, 36 hours straight. And they go into a traditional Mardi Gras tune, Mardi Gras Black Masking Indian song called um, Indian Red. I mean, it's that's as New Orleans as, as you get. And everything was under control, but we're still new and we're still kind of dithering and wanting to help and getting under the bartender's feet and everything. Um, and one of the bartenders sent Michael out from behind the bar and said, just go enjoy this. So we just stood together at the back of the room while they did Indian Red. And it was like, that moment is just so perfectly preserved in my, in my mind, in my brain, in my, in my you know, cellular being. I'll just never forget it. Do you ever connect that moment back to the moment you saw the beads in the trees? Absolutely. All the time. I connect every, every moment. Every one of those magical moments in New Orleans connects to all of the others. That's kind of the magic of New Orleans. I want to say it was Chris Rose who wrote for the Times-Picayune and put a lot of his post-Katrina essays into a book called One Dead in Attic, which I highly recommend if you get a chance. I think it was him who said something, something like, you know, everything that has ever happened in New Orleans is still happening. It just accrues layers like, like a pearl. Mm-hmm. Congo, Congo Square is still happening, right? Um, I mean, the bad and the good. Everything here connects to everything else in ways that are wondrous and mysterious and unlike any other place on earth. I'm wondering what you might have to say to people who are thinking about making this kind of change. Do you have any words of wisdom, I guess? I say rip the Band-Aid off quickly. Don't try half steps. Life is short. You can always make more money. You can't make more time. Thank you for joining us today on Digging Deep, True Stories of Big Change. I'm your host, Kelly Styring, founder and principal researcher from Insight Farm. At Insight Farm, we help companies make their products better through conversation and connection with consumers, often told as stories like the one you've heard today. If you'd like us to help you with consumer research, or if you'd like to participate in this podcast and tell your story, reach out at www.insightfarm.com. We look forward to the conversation.